0: Love Talk Radio. Okay, our guest, Howard Brockman, is the founder of Dynamic Energetic Healing, the powerful form of healing integrates and accesses universal spiritual resources in its unique application of shamanic practices, historically recognized by nearly every culture. Though the potential of hypnosis and the power of unconscious mind tend to be collectively accepted in the West, the notion that semi spiritual beings from a different but non ordinary reality can come to our aid is really beyond consensus of the psychological thinking for most Westerners. However, it's exactly that uh, psycho spiritual paradigm shift that differentiates dynamic energetic healing from many of our psychological change models. So there's a lot to talk about today, and uh, we're going to enjoy talking to Howard about all of this. You are now listening to the International Taz and Paula Show, and I'm Paula.
1: And I'm Taz. Today we'll find out how you can bring back a more heightened sense of joy and upliftment to your soul. After experiencing the system, individuals are saying that they radiate and feel a restored harmony within their soul and that they can carry with them every minute of their day. It also supported them in becoming more respectful of their own body, guided by their own intentions, by a deep wisdom from within.
0: Well, Howard Brockman is the author of Dynamic Energetic Healing, Today he will be talking about his newest book, Essential Self-Care for Caregivers and Helpers. We're so excited to have you with us, Howard. Thank you for taking the time and coming on our show. Yeah, thank
2: you for having me.
0: Well, um, maybe we should, and we're going to be talking about your newest book, but for our listeners, um, they are not real. they're that have not been exposed to dynamic energetic healing, can you explain what that is? Yeah,
2: sure. It's a it's a synthesis of three standalone healing models. So the um, the platform of uh, through which most of the dynamic energetic healing takes place is from energy psychology, a subdiscipline within the larger psychological community and that's been growing in popularity since the early 1980s and um, the uh, energy psychology community uh, describes energy psychology as addressing the human vibrational matrix which encompasses the biofield and the chakras and the acupuncture meridians so While uh, cognitive behavioral therapy would have as its first orientation our thinking, and, uh, for instance, gestalt therapy might have as its first orientation how we're feeling, energy psychology targets what's going on in a person's energy field, and their experience is being targeted. That's the first place that energy psychology practitioners address. So that includes Manual muscle testing, which uh, at least the, the dynamic energetic healing or the DEH model that I've generated, um, not all energy psychology practitioners use muscle testing, but it's a uh, it's a part of applied kinesiology and it provides direct access to a person's unconscious processes. So it's it's really wonderful for helping to move the process along and being able to pinpoint information. Such as limiting beliefs or old trauma and things like that. So that's one piece of it. Process-oriented psychology, uh, as taught by Dr. Arnold Mindell, is uh, something that I practiced and learned over a period of ten years working with Dr. Mindell and, he's, and his colleagues. So, though it's it's hard to pin down, basically, process-oriented psychology. Uh, follows uh, a person's natural unfolding. It's like uh, in uh, Chinese uh, religion, Taoism is about following the Tao or following nature. So process-oriented psychology uh, practitioners learn to follow their client's process rather than having presumptions about where they as a practitioner ought to go next. So, there is there a lot of psychodrama and a lot of attention to uh, uh, inner states as well. And that has been incorporated into the DEH or dynamic energetic healing model as a way to work non linearly but to follow the, pro- the process of the client wherever that goes. The last piece of DEH is um, core shamanic practices. You were saying a little bit about that at the beginning. And basically, this allows for the um, the integration of the healing power of compassionate spirits that is very much a part of, well, that's central to shamanic practitioners and shamans. So, as you mentioned, these are beings that are available to work with from another dimension of consciousness, and that through practice and uh, guidance with a a teacher, through uh, drumming and percussive drive or rattling, a person can shift their consciousness and learn to be able to move into what is referred to as a state of non-ordinary reality. It's a therapeutic trance that you can move in and out of. And so after having... Over 30 years of practice and experience doing this and teaching this, I have been able to what I call move between the worlds or move in and out of the dream time experience without all the drumming and the ritual while in a psychotherapeutic context allowing the power of these compassionate helpers to be present and to make substantive changes in uh, reducing the trauma of the client.
0: So when you first got out of school, um, um, did you, how were you exposed to this? I mean, did you go looking for it or uh, did it just, because you were working with Dr. Millman?
2: Now, are you referring to... The shamanic. uh, Oh, the shamanic practices. Mm -hmm. Well, it was my... Great Good fortune in one thousand nine hundred and eighty one to have met the mother of a friend of my son who was in first grade at that time and uh, her name was Michelle and she had quite a bit of experience already in shamanic practices, so I was just starting my practice as a therapist, and so she and I started exchanging uh, different modalities and Essentially, she ended up mentoring me for eight years by meeting every other week and doing the shamanic journey and reviewing that and uh, analyzing that. And, and then over the years, I mean, subsequent to that, I started taking more uh, trainings from the Foundation for Shamanic Studies, and I've studied with many teachers over the years. So it's been an ongoing process of cultivating new practices and uh, new experience.
0: And then integrating it
2: with the other type of work that you do. Yeah, it was just a natural integration. So um, one of the reasons that I ended up writing my new book, Essential Self-Care for Caregivers and Helpers, is because um, an interesting experience happened to me. I started learning energy psychology, started taking seminars in 1997, and I shifted my orientation from the process work with Dr. Mendel to learn this completely different way of working with clients, this energy psychology. So for the next four to five years, I took many trainings and started integrating various interventions into my practice. I had been working as a therapist up to that point for 16 years. And then for the next five years, as I was learning energy psychology, I started to experience a very mysterious chronic fatigue. I couldn't figure it out. And I ended up... um, Really, by the end of the week, I was completely exhausted and would spend the weekend in bed. I was getting acupuncture and doing what I could to try to figure this out. But it wasn't until I went to Brazil to uh, uh, visit this healer that it was shown to me. He was—he told me that I was taking on and absorbing the energy of my clients. And so through various means, I was healed and completely recovered from that exhaustion. But what I learned from that is that since I started entering into this orientation of the energy experience or the energy exchange with clients through the trainings I took in energy psychology, that I was unwittingly absorbing the negative energies from my clients that I never had before in all the 16 years that I had been working as I got more deeply into reflecting on this and learning I discovered that I'm a very highly empathic individual and there are many many caregivers and helpers and therapists and psychologists and social workers people who work in hospice and social services who chose that those professions because they're very empathic. Empathy is the ability to feel into somebody else's experience emotionally and somatically and to and to know as if you're instantly intuitive what's going on with that other person. So that was happening to me, but I, wa- I was unaware that as, as I would energetically merge with somebody, and get a lot of information that would be useful that I, I didn't have the awareness at that time to know how to separate myself from the other person, from the client. So I ended up getting sick, which is actually what contributes to burnout and compassion fatigue and secondary trauma to many, many people who are in the caregiving and helping fields. So over time I discovered that I could create energetic boundaries – through these various uh, dynamic energetic healing interventions, and through creating a boundary energetically, I began to realize I could get the information, merge with somebody through my empathy, withdraw, get the information, and remain separate and maintain my health. So since there are so many people that I've met over the years particularly therapists that are clients of mine who ended up with various degrees of chronic fatigue and uh, secondary trauma and burnout, I thought that it would be very useful to actually do some more research and incorporate what I've learned with the DEH model and target that for people in the caregiving professions.
0: I, th- I believe this is very important. I'd, you know, even people that are in the caregiving that um could this be around family members I could think that could this could happen also.
2: You're absolutely right. In fact, uh right now um there are millions of non professional helpers and those would include many of the over seventy eight million baby boomers who are helping their aging parents or parents of children with disabilities. So You know, there are a lot of older people now, unfortunately, who are succumbing to Alzheimer's disease, for example. Um, Ten years ago there were 500,000 people with that disease, and now there are over 5 million. And so one of the consequences is there are over 15 million, uh, you know, involuntary caregivers, usually family members, who have been recruited to take care of their family member who has this uh, terrible disease for which there's no cure at this time. And that can be, you know, it's very expensive to care for people, and people really need better boundaries to be able to take care of themselves while they're taking care of others. So, yes, you're exactly right. It It's across the board, and uh, it's proliferating in terms of the need for this.
0: Well, I can contest to that because my mother has Alzheimer's, and she's now in a home, but... Um I am exa- I'm exhausted after I go to visit her. And it's not only her, it's everyone around because I don't know it's part of the disease where the negativity starts to come out.
2: And yeah, you're exactly right. And um you know, it's a challenge to maintain a place of compassion and uh remain uh somewhat uh, disengaged even while you're loving this person who's so dear to you and requires a certain amount of care. So um, it's it's really important to be able to understand how to maintain self-care. And there are all kinds of different strategies in addition to energetic boundaries. But uh, one of the things that I, I learned along the way as I started integrating the shamanic healing into the DEH model is that in addition to the burnout and the secondary uh, trauma and the compassion fatigue that that many helpers and caregivers end up with as a consequence of not taking care of themselves and and, uh, becoming exhausted is something that I call psychotoxic contamination because while it's true that therapists, and caregivers end up absorbing emotional energies from their clients, whether it's anger or sadness or grief. Uh, In the shamanic paradigm, there are things that attach to people. They might be called earthbound spirits that are deceased, or they might be called intrusions or dark energy forms, and so for thousands of years shamans have been able to see and then release through what they call extractions these or releasements these uh negative energies but as you mentioned at the preface you know people in the west have not been trained in this so many if not most psychologists can address secondary trauma, but they don't know about this other kind of subtle negative energy that creates all kinds of problems that once it's released, it's been my experience that most of the problems that were being generated or the symptoms that were being manifest tend to dissipate pretty quickly. The problem is that there aren't a lot of people who are practitioners that really know about that, so one of my efforts has been to train practitioners in my training program teaching them how to do the shamanic journey and teaching them how to use these other shamanic practices to heighten their awareness about these other possibilities for assisting their clients
0: now um in your many years of doing this, do you act- you yourself actually can you the entities that are around
2: is well that- i can the answer is yes however i am not clairvoyant and so i don't see all these things that that people who are clairvoyant claim to see all the time but through the years of 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 my shamanic journey work what i'm able to do now is is merge with one of my helping Uh, spirits, and through their eyes, I'm able to see these different things. It's a very interesting phenomenon and hard to really articulate if you haven't had the personal experience, but, you know, a shaman doesn't do a lot. They may appear to be doing a lot, but basically they're partnering with their helpers, and it's their helpers who do all the healing the shaman actually just creates a passageway and then becomes a conduit for the work that their helper is doing through them. And then when they're done with whatever their intervention or their healing process is, then the shaman disengages and then they're no longer connected. So, you know, this is a different uh, idea than some of the Eastern um, spiritual approaches where the goal is to be through various meditation practices, be in this heightened state all the time to the point of becoming enlightened. Shamans are very practical, and so if there's something that needs to be done, they'll ask for help from some of their helpers, and basically they'll partner and collaborate to accomplish what needs to be done. Now, uh, go ahead. I just
1: going to Howard, could you please... Um be maybe um uh, I don't know, explain maybe for people so that they and describe the difference between conscious and unconscious empathy because you I think anyone working around people that you support all the time um, you need to be able to know the difference, and is there a way for people to to you know, hook into that so that they realize how how they are hooking into that empathically,
2: yeah, you've really uh keyed into something that's quite central because, as I mentioned before, empathy is that ability to feel into somebody else's experience. We can do that when we're watching a movie, reading a novel. Or when somebody is just telling us a personal experience that they're having and we're listening to them sitting across from them. So, you know, it's a way of knowing what somebody else is experiencing. And so for the most part, unless a person has been has had this brought to their attention and they've done some training, most empathic identification or most people experience empathy unconsciously, and a lot of that is through mimicry and rapport. People will end up um, moving in in harmony with somebody unconsciously. It's a very interesting phenomenon that psychologists have studied for many years. So the best way to uh, maintain an empathic connection is to stay in rapport with somebody. And there are all different kinds of ways that you can do that. But... Most people just get into the dance of relationship in their conversation, and they end up feeling a connection to this person, and that would be unconscious empathy. So in order to better take care of oneself, one first needs to understand what the phenomenon of empathy is really all about, how it happens, and then to make some decisions for noticing What happens to that person if they start to experience unconscious empathy that becomes problematic? So what that means is that some people will experience different symptoms that um, can become disturbing. For instance, they might notice that their muscles are tensing or their heartbeat is becoming more rapid or they're starting to space out or their extremities are becoming cold, those are all effects of unconscious empathy. And basically, one can say that um, associated autonomic nervous system reactions can also be caught. And people who are sensitive, I call them high-intensity relators in my book, who basically uh, fall into this, Helper personality type are naturally more empathetic. And so, if there's going to be a transfer of body sensations with the person that you're talking with and you're not aware of it, then you're becoming infected by somebody else's emotional experience. And that's completely unintentional and unconscious. So, different ways to take care of oneself. If you become aware that you're starting to get symptoms from being overwhelmed in a relationship or a conversation or an interaction, include something that's called unmirroring. So it's a way that we can break rapport as a way to interrupt the transfer or the exchange of those feelings and sensations. So we can break eye contact, for instance, uh, excuse ourselves to uh, use the bathroom or uh, turn away and do any kind of distraction in the moment that gives gives ourselves an opportunity to move out of rapport. So we can move it back in rapport, and then we can step out if we start to notice that we're becoming over-involved in the person's experience, and everybody will have that experience of catching somebody else's feelings or mood in their own way. So this is a piece that I've learned to integrate from my years studying and practicing process-oriented psychology. It's a term that Arnold Mandel uses. It's called second attention awareness. So first attention awareness would be when you walk into a room and you notice where the furniture is and you start to orient yourself to the environment It's what we normally take into account as we orient ourselves. When we're in deep conversation or interaction with somebody, we might notice what they're wearing, their eye color, what kind of a purse they're carrying, and details like that. That would be first attention. Second attention awareness would be as you're conversing and interacting with them, acknowledging to yourself as if you have another observer present. Uh, are there any images that you're aware of, any kind of body sensations or feelings that just tend to move in and move out? Mindell calls them flirts. these It's as if there's something in that process that's trying to get your attention, but it's very secondary to your normal awareness. So it just pops in, You might get it peripherally or notice it peripherally, and then it pops out of your awareness. Well, if you've trained yourself or cultivated second attention awareness, you will make a note of that so that if it comes around again, this interesting image that comes into your mind and then it's out of your awareness, you'll stay more attentive to that, and those can all be indications or signs that there is some kind of over-identification empathically and that you're picking up information that's trying to alert you that there's something more and something more deeply going on. And with second attention awareness, you have more information available to make better choices.
1: What about with the other person? You can actually feel the other person... Um, being upset that you've left, let go of that empathic aspect. Still take care of their needs, but it's almost like grasping from the other person. So, how do you handle that kind of thing?
2: Well, I'm not exactly sure what you mean. Can you can you ask? Can you elaborate on the question for me?
1: Right. Okay. So, you know, you're in this empathic mode with someone, and then. Um, and you're conscious of this empathic mode. Yes. And then um and you're also realizing that if you step out of this empathic mode with this person that they feel like uh you're letting go of the <laughs> the energy and they don't want you to let go of the energy. I see. And so do you don't want to Okay, saying?
2: I understand what you're saying now. So that's a good question because if a person is unskilled in breaking a rapport, then it might feel jarring to the other person, as you've just suggested, and they might start to feel that you've marginalized them in some way or you're rejecting them in some way so part of this is about the the skill for which you're able to stay in rapport with somebody, but every once in a while, if you're starting to generate a stress symptom, you're able to break rapport very briefly in order to take care of yourself and then return back to that interaction with them in a way that doesn't disrupt the flow of that energetic exchange or the information going back and forth. But this brings me to another point that I talk about in my book, and though uh, I don't know that people talk about this very much, but this can be true for caregivers and helpers, and it is the phenomenon of what I've referred to as energetic vampires. These are people who can be very needy, and they can be um, very draining, they can be very critical. They can be blamers. They can be people that I call chaos junkies who are able to uh, or who tend to move in and out of extreme states, extreme emotional states very quickly. That can be very disarming or disruptive to people, especially if it's your task to be supporting or helping them or caring for them. So, I mean, imagine – Uh, an an older person in their 50s that ends up having to take care of a parent because their parent has fallen ill in one way or another. And when they were growing up, this parent was verbally abusive to them, and they still have that same personality of being uh, critical and judgmental and that kind of thing. So That would put this caregiving person in a bind because, after all, it's their parent and they feel that they really need to and want to take care of them and support them. And yet, because they have this old pattern of abuse with this person who was critical and judgmental when they were growing up, here they are again confronted with that. That can be very draining, especially if it's, their primary responsibility to have to take care of this person. So when that happens, it's very important to, number one, make sure that your energetic boundaries with this person are solid and secure. And if that's true, then that means that you're going to be able to take better care of your own needs when you start to become overwhelmed, because certainly there will be times and periods of good rapport But with a person, whether it's a parent or just a client, who tends to get into these extreme emotional states or is very needy or very extreme, then it's going to be very challenging for the helper to make sure that they take many breaks, and I don't mean just for a few seconds, but sometimes it means stepping out of the room, catching their breath, taking a glass of water, and then coming back and... Sometimes it also means uh, telling that person, I can't do any more right now, I really need to stop, which is establishing a limit.
0: Well, I can, <laughs> you almost explained what I was going through with my mother, but after um, she's in a home now, what actually happened was I'm able to understand why she was negative, because with Alzheimer's she's coming out and saying exactly how she feels and what she thinks. She's not hiding it. So I can see that it started from her own inferior um, feeling about herself. Mm -hmm. So In this whole circle that I went through, it it turned out that I could understand her better, but I don't think that always happens.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right. I think for most well, for probably a lot of people, it just gets to be uh, very stressful and even to the point of becoming intolerable, so good for you
0: now, I have um a friend who is an energy vampire, but it's not that sh- uh, sh- it's just that she's like um, chaotic and it's it's like you're tired after being with her for about half an hour um but she's really super sweet and nice. But she's always asking questions and what do you think about this and she, and, it's, and and I can just feel it's an energy it's an energy vampire, so how do you have to break away from that
2: or? Well, you have to you know the, uh, I've identified the primary directive in my book as always having to take care of yourself first, and um, that means you know mentally emotionally and spiritually so. Sometimes what that means is that you have to say no to people. And that's very hard for so many of us because saying no sounds very rejecting and absolute. But in order to be able to eventually come to say yes with integrity, it means saying no when you start to feel overwhelmed or your energy is starting to feel overloaded and I'm not suggesting this is the case with your friend, but the truth is that for some people, they're just toxic. They can be really draining in a way that they're not intending to be, but in terms of the dynamics of of relationship, with a sensitive person and this other person who is some kind of an energy vampire, it ends up be becoming a toxic relationship. So being able to say no is establishing a boundary. That says... It, Associations connected to that are I can't do this anymore, I can't spend any more time with you, I have to leave now, I can't hear anymore. All of that is embedded implicitly when you say no. And it's that attitude of self-care, you being number one, even though that does sound selfish, that prevents any kind of eventual illness from taking root. It's one of the things that Many people in our culture that tends to be codependent have not been sufficiently trained to do for all kinds of reasons or supported to be able to do, which is to say no. You know, people feel that if they say no, they're going to lose a friend or they'll lose many friends. Over the years, I've had many numerous clients who acknowledged that they had fallen into this pattern of codependency, which is to be overly accommodating to people and to become what is referred to as a pleaser or a rescuer, and I've had many of these people say, well, I recognize that this has become a liability because nobody is there for me the way that I've been there for them, but I'm afraid that if I start saying no to people, that I'll lose all my friends. And then you have to ask yourself, well, what is truly a friend if they don't, allow you to take care of yourself. So, it's a tricky situation for a lot of people who have not been supported to take care of themselves.
1: So, the people that are actually doing this, are they aware of this of um, that they're an energy vampire? Did they realize that, you know, they're they are um are extremely selfish or whatever it might be? Uh, do they realize this aspect that they're
2: playing? Mostly I don't believe they do. I think that people are just being themselves and and uh, we're all doing the best we can. And if somebody is acting in that way that you've just described as an energy vampire, consider the possibility that one of the most compassionate things that we can do with that person is tell them how we feel honestly because at least that gives them information to be able to assess whether or not they're willing to make a change now it's not to say no to somebody or say i can't i can't listen anymore because these are the reasons I don't think the motive should ever be that we have to try to change or that we should be trying to change this person. The motive really needs to be to take care of ourselves, so that we can be in a state of integrity. But if we don't tell that person how we're feeling and the reason why, it's likely that they're going to continue to just behave in that way that you and many other people might find offensive, or overwhelming. So a side benefit potentially for taking care of yourself around other people is giving people an opportunity to reassess their own behavior and decide if they want to stay in the relationship with you and maintain rapport.
0: You may be doing them a favor. Cause maybe they, they weren't aware that that's what they were doing. I
2: think that's right. So um, it's hard to know if people are going to change. You can never predict that, but at least you can take care of yourself. In terms of a relationship, you have 50% of the responsibility for what's going on in those interactions. And so if you can take care of your 50%, then you're taking care of you. And if you can be honest, then you give that other person Information, and that might be a gift that very few people have dared to provide, because if somebody's a blamer or a critic and very judgmental, they can tend to be very harsh and controlling and act in in many ways like a bully it's a It's a difficult personality to confront, but if you're willing to take care of yourself, then you're at least Going to give them an opportunity to hear what's going on if you're if you're being honest, and then to reevaluate their behavior. It's tricky. It is. <laughs> uh,
0: what about people that come in the room? They don't have to say anything to you. Uh, it could be through their thoughts. Um, it's just that you just feel this negativity. Uh, and they may not have said a word, but you could just, when they come in the room, it's just this, how can I explain it, darkness that comes with them?
2: Yeah, well, I think most people have felt that even if they're not uh, naturally highly empathic. Some people carry a cloud, a dark cloud around them, whether they're depressed or whether they're angry or brooding. So if that happens to me, for I mean, I can I can notice that. At the market, if I'm in the checkout line,
0: Mm -hmm. and, uh,
2: you know, the person next to me, I start to get this feeling or this vibe. So, you know, if it's a short line, I'll just kind of take a step back and know that they're going to pass through very quickly. But if it's, uh, for instance, a different context, like a social event or a party, Uh, that's not a person that I'm going to want to spend much time with. I mean, if I'm taking care of myself, I'm going to probably avoid that person if I can.
0: Well, uh, that happened to be at a workshop I took, and uh, at intermission I changed my seats, but I just felt this darkness. And and, and to me, uh, almost like they felt like I was invading their space. So, how I the solution I did was just move. But.
2: Well, I think that's what uh, I think that's totally appropriate and what, probably what I would do as well, because unless you really get into it and talk to somebody and and uh, find out about what their experience is, we can only make assumptions and that's not really very useful. But you can trust your feelings as you did, being a sensitive person apparently, and move away to create. A, a better space. So that's creating a better boundary for yourself, and that would be completely appropriate.
0: And you know what I noticed what that person did after I did, uh, this person put their book and their purse and everything on that the seat that I was sitting in so that no one else would sit there?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they were more aware of it than uh, you might have imagined. Maybe they didn't want to be around anybody either.
0: Right, right. So it's it's funny how what we run into. Yeah. So you are going to be in California. I know one place you're going to be is in Auburn um, on the 31st. That's end. right. Uh, I'll give out the telephone number uh, so that they can call. Somebody can call if they want to go and uh, actually meet you in person. And um, I'll give it at the end of the show. Also, it's. Area code five three zero eight eight five six four five seven and and that's uh, going to be on eleven sixty one High Street in Auburn the thirty first at six thirty. Are you going to be anywhere else besides Auburn?
2: Um, well, I am. I'm I'm going to be in Sacramento the following three days, and I'm going to be uh, giving a uh, uh, a training to uh, some of my uh, Dynamic Energetic Healing uh, trainees, and that is not going to be open to the public because uh, my training uh, goes for one year every other month, and this is an advanced training for uh, the DEH graduates. It's going to be on a a protocol that I developed for uh, relationships, Uh, I call it All My Relations, and it's essentially helping people to uh, identify in what contexts they feel most threatened by and establishing uh, energetic boundaries with those contexts as we identify specific problem states that are being generated from it. So, for instance... Some people might find that with men in general, they do not feel as comfortable as with women in general. So that's a category that we would establish boundaries with. And then there's a list of different problematic issues, a checklist that I will be going through to ask, well, is this a related problem to when you're with Men as a generic group in general, is there any are there any issues with anger? are there any issues with alcohol? are there any issues with um, and so on and so on and so it's a way to identify or map out where we kind of fall into um a black hole a space of unawareness that generates chronic relationship problems and how to basically mend that so that we can end up achieving our relationship goals, which is generally for most people to be in good harmony in a mutually loving, respectful relationship. That's going to be the first day, and the second day is going to be uh, uh, a shamanic uh, circle where uh, the trainees and I are going to be working on Uh, shamanic journey work, and some shamanic healing techniques since they've been working on this for over a year. And the last day will be working on collective intentions. This is using the DEH model to work with groups, families, couples, as well as larger groups to uh, use these same energetic strategies in order to accomplish uh, stated goals or intentions more quickly. So... uh, Unfortunately, that won't be open to the public. But that's a, a little bird's eye view into what I'm going to be doing.
0: So, um, when you if, teach these classes, uh, you'll probably be getting starting another beginning group. Are all the people in um, your workshops or your yearly, once a month workshops, are they all counselors? Or
2: no, actually, probably only about fifty percent of them are counselors or therapists or psychologists. Um, Many of the others uh, include um, massage therapists, uh, Reiki practitioners, and uh, other people who have been studying on their own or with other teachers, but are interested, even though they're not a therapist or a clinician, they're interested in going more deeply into learning this healing model either with their friends or some of their clients, even if they're not uh, therapists, or perhaps family members, because through the muscle testing and the energy psychology interventions alone, there's an enormous amount of healing that can happen very quickly.
0: are are you still doing private sessions with people?
2: I I am. Yes, I have a private practice in Salem, Oregon, and uh I meet with people all the time and and uh I even uh, work with people over Skype from all over.
0: So are you uh, uh, actually able to do the shamanic work over uh over the Skype?
2: I am, because one of the interesting features of uh Shamanic practices is that um, you know in the in the universe of non ordinary reality it's you know there at least in ninety percent of shamanic uh cultures um, there are th- three universes, so to speak uh, or three aspects of this universe there's the upper world and the lower world and the middle world. And in the upper world and the lower world, the beings that one will meet are only beings of compassion. And so this is a realm outside of time. So when you enter into this space of the upper world or the lower world and you're interacting with these compassionate spirits, you're in a timeless space. So distance and time are really irrelevant. They don't matter when we're working non-locally in this way. So I can be working with a client in my office or I can be uh, doing a shamanic journey for somebody across the country or in Europe and they can be present uh, through Skype or we can just decide that at a certain time I'm going to journey for them, they're going to be sitting in a meditative and receptive state and then afterwards I will call them and uh, we'll talk about uh, the results of the journey. So, so there's really no barrier in terms of distance or time for uh, successful shamanic journey work and healing.
1: Okay, I have a question. Uh, we had a caller, and uh, first of all, um, he wanted to know your name. Your name is Howard Brockman, and um, and he wanted to know is your is your life experience. Uh, um, an intellectual academic or or how did you get the experience and how you know how did you bring it forth and etc
2: well uh it is both my first master's degree from USC is in religious studies um because at that time I was interested in actually teaching and uh uh when I was teaching at Oregon State University, I moved from L.A. to Oregon around 1978, I soon discovered uh, that um, very very few of the students taking general education requirements were really interested in the subject matter. They were more interested in just getting the grade as one general ed requirement. And then I taught some classes, some seminars in the university honors program, and uh uh, they were small colloquia, and so the students there were more interested, but I realized that we could only talk about things in an academic or intellectual way because those are the the limitations of academia. So I realized at that point that I wanted to go deeper into relationship, and that prompted me uh, soon after to uh, uh, get into the master's program I have a master's in social work at Portland State University so that uh, I have a clinical degree. But from early on, I've been taking all kinds of different trainings along the way, Ericksonian hypnosis and gestalt therapy and many, uh, you know, the process-oriented psychology. and, And those, I would say, are extracurricular, just as rigorous academically, but not within a university setting.
1: Okay. And, like, you have over 31 years of clinical experience. Uh, You know, you're you're licensed in Oregon as a clinical social worker. Um,
2: Yes, that's true.
1: Yeah, and you train and supervise other therapists and counselors and... So it's really hands on as well, you know, just being able to experience everything and, and train and teach others and and support others and in, in, um, in their needs so that they can see and feel things automatically I think. Um, they can begin to touch and understand what they're what they're feeling.
2: Yeah, that's right. Hands on is uh the most interesting and a uh, wonderful experience for me because writing is actually very solitary. It's a very solitary experience. I mean, I enjoyed it. It's very intellectually engaging to do the research and work with an editor and, you know, fashion your words in a certain way to communicate ideas, and I've enjoyed that. But, uh um I don't see myself as a writer first and foremost. I see myself as a as a therapist and a teacher primarily, and that's where the energy is or that's where, you know, most of the uh excitement and enjoyment is. And when people leave a uh, a DEH session since we're interacting in a different way from traditional talk therapy, we're muscle testing, uh people are tapping on acupuncture points and they're standing in front of chakras and they're going inside to access their own experience. You know, it, it really is a lot of dynamic energy exchange that's happening, but we always create sacred space first and and ask each of us each of our respective spiritual resources to be present to support the process and people generally feel really good when they leave. And uh, they, through the muscle testing, they're able to know with pretty great precision what has balanced and what has not. So it's not a guessing game about whether or not wondering they're, if they're feeling better or if they're going to feel better. People feel lighter afterwards because they're releasing congested information fields that have been determining all kinds of different unconstructive behaviors. That's the model. It's it's not easy always to wrap one's mind around it because it's just so different from the model that most therapists use that go back all the way to 1903 when Freud released his first book on the interpretation of dreams. I mean, it's been that Western orientation for the most part that most therapists and counselors use. But this is a departure, and while it's not for everyone... It's amazing how many people even if they don't have a lot of background in this stuff are able to very quickly grasp it and uh benefit from it.
0: Uh, do you how work with past exciting? life? I mean, do you work with past life in, uh in this
2: Well, yes. Um, okay. when we uh through the muscle testing are working on a particular goal, therapeutic goal, at a certain point, I have to ask, are there any energetic origins that need to be healed and identified on this intention? So an energetic origin is an is a event in one's past that we need to reference to from which the client is still carrying and being affected by traumatic residue. So that could be a current life origin from an event that happened last year or when they were two years old. It can happen from uh, an event that happened on uh, or occurred on one of their ancestral lineages or even a past life, uh, and thus a karmic uh, energetic origin is still encoded in their soul that is presently still carrying interference patterns affecting them in this present time for whatever their issue is that they're wanting healing on. So the answer, long answer is Yes.
0: Well, let's. Uh, we only have uh, about a minute and a half. Let's tell everyone uh, we've been talking to Howard Brockman, and uh, he's the author of Dynamic Energetic Healing, and uh, his newest book uh, is Essential
1: Self-Care for the Caregivers and Healers. And I have to do an input here. <laughs> I can't. I can't not let it go. And I'm telling you, this book, you know, Howard, I personally want to thank you. I think um, this book, for the millions who are untrained nonprofessionals who are being recruited daily to work with their elderly people or just people within their life, you know, in their household, this is such an awesome book, and thank you for writing it. Personally, I want to say that.
2: Well, thank you 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 for your kind words. (laughs)
0: We can use it even with teenagers, I think.
1: Oh, yeah, this is so awesome.
0: And uh, your website is uh, dynamicenergetichealing.com. Yes. And uh, uh, Howard's going to be in California and in Auburn on the 31st, the evening at 630. If anybody wants to uh, find more about how to get there and... uh, And make a reservation. The telephone number is 530-885-6457. And we've thoroughly enjoyed our hour with you, Howard.
2: Well, thank you both. I, too, have enjoyed chatting with you. It's been a really good experience.
0: And uh, we'll have to have you back. Thank you.
2: That's great. Have a wonderful day.
0: You, too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.